Good morning. My name is Nancy L. And I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. I am recovering from the disease of alcoholism. I'm recovering from the disease of someone else's alcoholism. I came into Al-Anon in 1985, one year into my marriage. And I was absolutely heartbroken. And I wanted to get out of the marriage. And instead of leaving the marriage, I decided that I would try the fellowship of Al-Anon and see if perhaps there was something in it that couldn't help me. And I walked into my first meeting and I was so scared. And I felt so alone. And in my first meeting, there were a wonderful group of what I prefer to call old-timers. These were the matriarchs of Al-Anon. And they said, you come sit right here next to me. And I felt so safe. And I went into the program and I was an agnostic. I didn't believe in God. I didn't know if there was a God or not, but there wasn't one for me. And they had these 12 steps, and I swear God was in every other step. And I was like, oh, great. And they did this serenity prayer, and they closed with the Lord's Prayer. And I said, all right, well, you know, I'll just hang in here. But I made some modified adjustments. What I did is I said the serenity prayer and left off God. I started with Grant. And that was okay for me because that's where I was 11 years ago. And when I walked into the room, they said to me that alcoholism was a disease. Now, I really thought that my husband was trying to get back to me. I was convinced that his drinking was just to aggravate me. And I had this hard concept that he wasn't doing this to me, that he was drinking because he had to. And that was a novel idea because I thought for sure that this man was out to get me. And he was succeeding. I had lost all calmness. I had become a very irrational person. I obsessed with where he was, what he was doing, what was going on. And the big scare for me is I drive um, as part of my job. And I almost took out a couple of campers with a canoe on their uh, car one day because I was so preoccupied. And as I started to pull out of the intersection and they had the right away, I saw the look of fear on them and I knew I was in trouble. So I went to my first meeting and they told me some real basics. The first thing they said is it was a disease and that there were three C's, that I didn't cause it, that I can't cure it, and I can't control it. Well, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to control that alcoholic from drinking. I begged, I pleaded, I cried, I threatened. I had a lot of games and they didn't work. The other thing they said to me, it was a family illness, and I was as sick, if not sicker, than the alcoholic, and that I needed to take a good hard look at step one, that my life had become so unmanageable. And I could buy step one. My life was a mess, and I was hurting. And, you know, I think I was sicker than that alcoholic because I was sober, and I was acting irrationally, and I had no excuse for my behavior. The other thing they said was a hard pill to swallow. They said, you have to keep the focus on you. And I said to them very calmly and very serenely, you don't know what he's doing. (laughs) And they said, we've been there. I'm like, oh, no, no, I can't keep the focus on me. I mean, this man is drinking and driving. What's worse is I'm sober and I'm riding with him. (laughs) 
I wanted to believe when he told me he was okay to drive, even though I saw those ten beer cans, not that I was counting, you know, <laughs> that it was perfectly okay to get in that car because he told me so. I don't know what the hell was wrong with me. They told me that I had a choice in life, and the choice in life was my attitude. And quickly in the program, I came to understand that I could see the cup in my life half full or half empty. And it had been half empty for a long, long time. So I made a decision that I was going to have a good life. Irregardless, that I was going to see the positive no matter what happened. And that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Suddenly I smiled when I really had looked unhappy for a long, long time. I began to see a lot of little pleasures in life that I had missed. And I began to understand one of the biggest things in alcoholism is that I loved an alcoholic. And before Al-Anon, the disease of alcoholism was like this big. And in Al-Anon, the disease of alcoholism became this big. And there was this wonderful person that I still loved. And I was able to put a perspective on that problem. That this person wasn't horrible and that he wasn't nasty and mean, that he had a terrible problem and it affected him, but he had many, many good qualities. And I needed to start looking at those good qualities because all I saw were his faults. And when I go to take my inventory, my faults stand out the best when I look at somebody else and criticize them because what I see is what I don't like in myself. But I see it in others much more quickly than I ever find it in myself. I had a lot of resentment. I had a lot of resentment for the pain the alcoholic had caused me. And Al-Anon said, if you keep coming back, you'll find hope and you'll find help, whether you like us or not, and that you can find contentment and even happiness, whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. What a novel idea. I've been hoping for a long time that he'd stop drinking, and I could be happy even if he was drinking. It's a good thing I heard that, because for eight years in Al-Anon, the alcoholic in my life drank. You know, I kind of thought that if I work my program really hard, because they sort of allude to that in Al-Anon, that that alcoholic will be driven to sobriety. <laughs> Damn, I worked that program hard. <laughs> Year after year after year. And I'm very grateful today that the alcoholic didn't find sobriety for eight years. Because I would watch other people, and they would have these pink clouds. The alcoholic would get sober, and they'd be all happy. And then the alcoholic would slip, and they would be gloom. I was happy. The alcoholic was still drinking. I didn't yo-yo. I didn't have a chance or opportunity to yo-yo. And I was really glad that that had happened. Because I learned to take care of myself and I learned to keep the focus on me, irregardless of what he was doing. It sort of upped the ante in our marriage because, you know, the things he used to do, I, I often compare it to fishing. The alcoholic would cast out that line with the bait waiting for me to take it. You know? And I would react. He knew how to push my buttons. So he would be fishing, and I was no longer reacting. He would do things, and I would just let it be. I no longer argued or cried or begged or pleaded. I just went on with my life and worked my program. He continued to drink, and I continued to use the tools of the program. 
and one of the best tools of the program they ever gave me was Plan B. And in Al-Anon, Plan A is what you do when the alcoholic is either sober or in a good mood or capable of doing it. And as the disease of alcoholism progressed, Plan B in my life took on a greater proportion. The alcoholic no longer wanted to go places with me. And I came to the understanding that I could have a life full of regret wishing I had done this or done that. Or I could find someone else to do it. And so I enlisted the help of friends and Al-Anon members. And when I wanted to go to Boston for the day, I would ask the alcoholic, and he would say, I don't want to go to Boston. What do you want to go there? We went three years ago. (laughs) And I would invite a friend, and I would have the best time. And I'd bring him home something, usually brownies from the brownie places. (laughs) You know, I wanted to go to the Freiburg Fair. He didn't want to go to the Freiburg Fair, so I found a friend. And my life became really enriched. And I still loved the alcoholic, even though he was continuing to drink. But I no longer was suffering the pains of alcoholism. And I was having a wonderful time. I wish more than anything that I was doing these things with him, but it wasn't meant to be. And if I focused on the fact that I wasn't doing things with the alcoholic, I would be bitter and angry and full of resentment. Instead, I focused on the fact that I was so lucky to have a program that offered me an opportunity to find some serenity and to take care of myself. The other thing the program offered me was service. Now, I have to admit, and this is a true confession, that I joined service to get away from the alcoholic. They offered me promises of sugarloaf, crust aisle. <laughs> the coast <laughs> for a weekend at a time. <laughs> so I quickly joined up and became a GR. They were selfish motivation. I confess that. And I really needed to get away. I needed to be able to keep a perspective on that. And the alcoholic was fine because, you know, he got to do a lot of things while I was gone for three days. <laughs> God knows what happens in those three days. The only thing I ever knew was one day I came back and my pickup truck was gone. <laughs> it was given away and that was okay. <laughs> I learned forgiveness in a big way. (laughs) But as you and the program know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. And as last night I listened about watching someone watching themselves go downhill, I can only say to you, I was watching someone sober go downhill, and it was so frightening. Someone I loved was really heading for some bad times. I was watching a business be run into the ground. I was watching someone who didn't care about themselves. That the attitudes and disease had taken over, and it was so heartbreaking. And as much as I loved that alcoholic, I felt a lot of pain, and I wanted more than anything for that alcoholic to get better, and I know I couldn't do it. I couldn't save that person, no amount of, of willingness 
no amount of praying, no amount of anything. I couldn't do it for him. He had his higher power and I had mine. And I was getting better. And I felt like I was outgrowing the alcoholic. And I loved him dearly and we were spending less and less time together and he was being more and more miserable. And sometimes that misery was directed to me and sometimes that self-hate was directed to himself. Now, when I came into Al-Anon, I was very envious. You see, most of those women in that room's husbands were in sobriety. And they say, during the meeting, And my husband's been sober for seven years. And I was just... <laughs> Eight years later, my husband wasn't in that other room. And I just wanted to deck him. <laughs> And then it was even worse, we'd have meetings on living with sobriety. (laughs) That was a fantasy for me. (laughs) But that was okay. I worked through those resentments, and I thought, lucky them, my time will come. You see, my greatest fantasy, and i got to be honest, some people fantasize about sex. Not me. My fantasy was that alcoholic was in the AA room on the other side of the building. We were working the steps together. Oh, my God, we were reading literature to one another in bed. I still get hot flashes thinking about <laughs> I figured my day would come. <laughs> but fantasies are fantasies. And while the alcoholic's denial was that he had a problem, oh no, the drinking was now up to five days a week and Drug abuse was pretty serious. My denial was that I had a happy marriage. You see, every friend I had, I told them what a wonderful husband I had. Of course, I invited no one over to the house. (laughs) I didn't want them to know the truth. And the one few people that did come over to the house, I have one friend in particular. Now, darn her, she would confront me. I would come, she would come over, and the alcoholic would be a total jerk to me. And she's kind of a big-mouthed woman like I am. She'd say, I thought you had a happy marriage. <laughs> and at least the alcoholic could have done was fake it like I was faking it. <laughs> he was blowing my cover. And so I pretended and I told everyone, and I didn't let very many people know, and I put on a happy face and I went on. But the disease of alcoholism had taken its toll And I became very scared to live in my own house. And I understood quite clearly after eight years of marriage and 12 years of being together that I could go to jail for his behavior. Now, I put up a lot in those last eight years. And I tried very hard, but I wasn't about to go to prison for someone else's behavior. And I really loved the alcoholic very much. 
and I said to myself, I'm going to give this one last shot. And I did what is the cruelest thing I have ever done to anyone. It's like planning a sabotage. I did an intervention on the alcoholic. Now, no one knew he drank because he had no friends except a couple of drinking buddies. His parents lived out of state. My parents were rather oblivious that he was drunk and rude to them. And so this was an intervention by one. And I had to do a lot of work. I had to meet people. I had to plan things. I had to change the locks. I had to notify the police. And under the pretense, I brought him to a couple's meeting. And I read four pages of everything he'd ever done to me. And I told him that the locks were changed and the police had been notified and he couldn't go home. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. And he agreed to go to rehab and I was so happy. Except he agreed to go to outpatient rehab. <laughs> that was not my fantasy, I must tell you. I was hoping for a good 28-day inpatient. I was on vacation. <laughs> Break from that alcoholic. He went to seven-day outpatient. Something funny happened after that intervention. I got up the next morning, and I looked in the mirror, and I didn't recognize the woman staring back at me. She was old. She was haggard. She had lines on her face. This was a very hurting woman. For the first time, I'd seen the toll of living with active alcoholism for eight years had taken on me, and it wasn't a pretty picture. To look in the mirror and not recognize the person who is staring back at you is a very frightening thing, and I understood so clearly how the disease of alcoholism had affected me. For you see, I'd been in the program for eight years. I wasn't drinking, but it had taken an emotional toll. I was angry. I was resentful for what I felt I had been put through, when in fact it was just the disease of alcoholism. I was enraged, and I didn't know if I wanted to stay in that marriage. I was mad. But I promised myself, after going this far, that I would give that alcoholic a chance. And I said to him, you have a year, and we'll see how it goes. I really wanted to hook it out, but I love this man so very much. And for the first time, I had this little peek that maybe my fantasies would come true. Maybe we would be lit reading literature and we would be sharing stuff together. Maybe I, too, would be working the program. And maybe we would even be here at Roundup together. I never went to Roundup. I figured it was a couple of things. And this is so exciting. I had a lot of work on myself. I had to um, figure out what this anger was about. And that was okay. And I had to forgive myself for sabotaging someone I loved dearly. And things were good. For about six months, the alcoholic went to meetings, and I had such great hope. And then he stopped. You see, AA wasn't for him. He didn't need that. He was different. I bet you know the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. <laughs> I um, never understood the term dry drunk until about six months after the intervention. And I didn't understand what was happening in my marriage. It was like living with active alcoholism, except this person's sober. They're not drinking. And the behavior became increasingly unacceptable, and it was directed at me or in front of me or at people I loved or my pets. 
It was a pattern of provoking and sitting back. And more than anything, I had to let go and let God. I had to understand that this is not what I hoped and dreamed for, but I would still make the best of it. So now we're at the year point where I said I would decide whether to leave or stay, and I made a decision to leave, to stay. Things were not well, but that's okay, because I was living plan B. And I may not have had a happy marriage, but I had a wonderful life because of alcoholism. It was rich and full, and when there were good times with the alcoholic, there were good times. And when they're not, I did something else. And so life went on, and I was doing okay. And in January of this year, we all have our breaking point. For me, it was the dog. I'd gotten a dog from a neighbor, and I loved this dog. I'd wanted this dog for two years. His name was Lucky. He was about to be put away at the pound when the neighbor got him. And the neighbor tied him to a vacant house and lived with his girlfriend and came over and fed him twice a day. And I had said to that neighbor, if you ever get rid of that dog, you better give him to me. And he said, I'm going to get rid of that dog. He kind of growled at me. One day he came over and said, I don't want that dog anymore. He's sneaky and devious. Well, what? <laughs> Haven't met a dog in my life that wasn't sneaky and devious. <laughs> and I begged that husband of mine to let me have that dog. And he regretfully said yes, he didn't want the dog, we already had one. And Lucky came to live with us, and seven days later the neighbor's house burnt down flat. And his dog he had gotten in the fo- had died in the fire. And Lucky became my dog, and he was just the most wonderful dog I could ever ask for. He followed me from room to room, and the alcoholic started resenting that dog. You love that dog more than you love me, he said, and I thought... Possibly. <laughs> that dog gave me great pleasure in my life when there sometimes wasn't any. And the behavior towards the dog increased. And one day I looked in that dog's eyes and he'd walked in front of my husband and that dog had a look of fear. He was being yelled at all the time, and that poor dog was suffering. And we all have our breaking points, and for me, it was the dog. You know, it wasn't the behavior that had been directed at me. It was watching that dog. And finally, one day, I understood that I could no longer take it anymore, that I tried. I tried as hard as I could, and nothing had worked. I wasn't my husband's higher power. He wasn't getting better, and in many ways, I was enabling him to continue being sick by staying there. Because, you see, when he was mean or nasty to other people, I was extra nice to try to compensate, to try to make up for what his behavior was like. And so, if he was rude to somebody, I jumped right in, and I was just as pleasant and nice and sweet and kind as I could be, because I didn't want you to think what a jerk he was being. And so there were no consequences for those behaviors. I enabled him for all those years. No matter what he did, it was okay. And so I made the toughest decision in my life, and I decided to leave my marriage. And I was absolutely heartbroken. I had tried for years and had done so much, and all I wanted to do was be happily married, and it seemed to be eluding me. And I was scared to death, because by leaving my marriage, 
I didn't know where I'd be living, what I would be doing. I hadn't been single or alone for 16 years, and it was really scary. And I knew now more than ever in January that I needed my program. And the thing that rooted me was my higher power was step three. You see, I couldn't move out. I had three horses, two dogs, and three cats, and where do you go? And I knew if I moved out, I didn't have a chance that he would not be motivated to sell the house or buy the house or whatever. And so I stayed. And I'm not sure that was one of my brightest ideas is to live with somebody you want to leave for six months, but that was okay. It's what I needed to do. I moved into the guest room, and that sleep sofa became my room. And every morning I got up and I said, thank you, God, for this sleep sofa. And please, God, today I need step three. I need to have faith and belief that whatever is in your plan is okay and that you will be with me and walk through me in these hard times. And I would have a calming effect. And I would start my day so calm. And I would say, okay. And I visually pictured myself holding God's hand. God wasn't holding my hand. God and I weren't holding hands. Well, actually, God was holding my hand. I put my hand in God's hand and I walked through that day. And what would happen was it would be okay. And I had no idea what wonderful things would unfold for me. I could never imagine what God's plan would be. There were a few bumps along the way. And I prayed in step 11. Whatever your will is, God, please unfold it before me. I have faith in you. My husband wanted to buy that house. It was a hundred acres and a beautiful farmhouse. And he didn't have a very steady job and he didn't have a good paying job. And I went out house hunting. And I looked at three houses and the third house I walked in and God told me this is my house. It had nine beautiful acres of pasture for the horses. It was a little bungalow and it had a two-car garage. And it was well-maintained. And it had a handyman across the street who maintained one of the bays in the garage and a garden out back. And he said, listen, I have this garden and I, I just love this property. I'll mow your lawns. I'll fix your lawnmower. I thought, wow. <laughs> a house with a man and I don't have to live with him. <laughs> God was watching over me. <laughs> I made an offer on that house and it was accepted and I was the happiest woman in the world. I was afraid to dream though because there were a couple stumbling blocks. I didn't know if he'd get financing if he didn't. I needed to buy our house. So I went to start looking for financing and the doctor called me. And I'd been to the doctor for my annual physical in February and now it's April. And I've got a house under contract in 60 days to close. And the nurse on the phone said, your pap smear came back with atypical cells. And I just, I was handling the divorce okay. I was handling buying the house okay, but I didn't need this. I just knew being the hypochondriac that I am, I was going to die and there's going to be no one to take care of me. This house came with a trailer park across the street. You know, I'd look at a lot of houses and when you need land for horses, there's usually no neighbors. And I knew that God put that trailer park across the street because it was full of people who were going to take care of me. As I withered away. And God put in place people who held my hand. 
In other words, God sent messengers for me. When I found out at work I had atypical cells, I have a co-worker who's a recovering alcoholic, and we were supposed to have a lunch date that day. And I bawled my eyes out, and I couldn't tell her why I couldn't go to lunch because I had to go to home. And she held my hand, and she said, what's the matter, what's the matter? And I was crying so hard, I couldn't say anything. And I cried and cried, and she was getting really worried about me because I'm like, she's hysteric. And finally, I whispered to her, I have a typical self. And she said, oh, dear. And she held my hand, and I knew it would be okay. Two days later, I went to a bank to apply for a loan. Now, my husband had gotten pre-approval, and all I heard is, I have a pre-approval letter. Do you? Do you? How do you know you're going to get financing? I really worry about you on your own. And I went to the bank, and it was a snowstorm. And I was so upset with everything going on in my life, I had that application filled out. And God put the best loan officer in that seat, in that bank officer. I was sitting there babbling incoherently about atypical cells and getting divorced. I didn't know what was going on in my life. My application was only half filled out. And she said, don't you worry. You give me that application and we'll fill it out together. Two hours later, she looked at my application and she said, no problem. And I couldn't believe it. My higher power was walking me through this process, and it would be okay. Turns out my health was okay. Thank God, because when I went to the doctor, for whatever they do, nobody told me what they did. They took out scissors that were 10 inches long, and I said, what do you get those for? And they said they sniffed if they saw anything they didn't like, and I'm like, you're not sniffing anything in me. And this appointment was the day before my divorce, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not doing this. And the doctor did whatever they did, and he said, no problems, and he put those scissors away. And I said, thank you, God. Thank you for letting there be no problem, because I couldn't have coped with those scissors. Because they told me they just came back from sharpening. <laughs> I think that was supposed to be a comforting thought. It was not. So on the eve of my divorce, I'm sitting in my living room with my soon-to-be ex-husband in about 12 hours, and it's the saddest day in my life. And I'd gotten a card from a friend who sent me a $20 gift certificate to Agway and a birthday card because I forgot to tell you, when I got my court date, my divorce was on my 40th birthday. I opened that envelope and I jumped up for joy. God has a sense of humor. This was God's birthday gift to me. I got to go to court on my birthday, and I was going to be 40 and free. It was truly a sad day. I don't want to make light of it, but it was truly a sad day. And before we got to court, we had three horses. And I brought the tissues, because sometimes I cry over this. One of the horses was clearly mine, and we had an old Belgian draft horse named Bob. And then we had a five-year-old Percheron horse that was supposed to be my husband. Well, my husband couldn't make the dog mind. How I ever thought he could make a 1,500-pound horse mind, I don't know. And that was a horse because it was his horse and he couldn't handle it. I had to take over it, and I spent two years training that horse to ride, and she'd thrown me more times. And it was a horse that I hated to love, and it reminded me of my husband and how he couldn't handle her. 
And we would go out and take that horse for a walk, and he couldn't handle her, and he'd have to hand her over to me. Well, my neighbor and best friend had been riding that old draft horse, and she said to me, you can't give him that draft horse. He won't take care of it. She's right, she loves this horse. He'll probably neglect the horse. He probably won't float the teeth or worm it or something. Uh, so I approached my husband and said, you know, listen, how would you like to keep that that horse believe? He's like, yeah, you let me. He was ecstatic. And I said, yeah, I'll swap you for the old draft horse. A week and a half before the divorce, my girlfriend and I took that old draft horse and my riding horse, and we trailed it down to Old Orchard Beach. And we rode from Pine Point to the pier, past the pier and back. And it was the most wonderful day in the world because my divorce was in a week and a half. And there I was in those orchards with the wind in my hair and having the most marvelous time. And we got back home and it was the best memories I ever had. The divorce came and nine days after the divorce, that old draft horse dropped dead. My ex-husband, who I'm still living with at that time, walked out and patted that old draft horse at 5.30 in the morning. And I went out at quarter seven. And I looked at him and he looked dead. But you know, his eyes were open and they were nice and clear. So I said, Bob? Bob? And he thought, gee, he looks good. I don't think he's breathing. But his eyes look good. So I ran up to the house and called my girlfriend and she sent her husband up and by then when we went down, the horse's eyes had cl- clouded up and he was pretty stiff. Um, and I said, why God? Why? I've had so many losses. I'm losing my house. I'm losing my husband. I'm losing my marriage. I'm losing my horse, my cat, one of the dogs. Why are you taking this horse from me? And I had to go back to step three. And I had to know that in God's plan that there was some horse waiting for me that this horse maybe wasn't meant to move that it would have been too traumatic to be separated from one of his buddies and that it would be okay and that I had to believe in that because otherwise I was so devastated and so I had faith that somewhere somehow there was a horse that was just meant for me and so the day came when he closed and bought me out of my house. And I was able to close in my new house. And God had found what I didn't know back in January, the most wonderful house with a handyman in the neighborhood. And I moved and I put my horse with a friend because she doesn't do well alone. And I understand that that's okay. And so I went with a girlfriend to a place called Adopt a Horse. And if anybody has ever been there, these are God's people. And they rescue horses off meat trucks. And they had 50 horses. 45 of them were race horses that didn't cut it at the track. And they had about five other horses. And my girlfriend and I went up, and the last thing I wanted was a race horse. And they had a, this, and they had that. And over in the back paddock, they had a Missouri fox trotter who had been neglected, had a few scars, very thin, no hair behind the ears where she had worn a halter. And my girlfriend and I were going, Missouri fox trotter? Eva, Missouri Fox Trotter? It's a very rare special horse. And this was someone's show horse that probably got sold at an auction. And they said, well, she's kind of headstrong. You have to be an experienced rider. So I did what I always do. I put Christina on her first. <laughs> Figured Christina didn't get killed and I'd jump on that horse. <laughs> and we left and that horse was going to be mine. And I knew that God had been there. 
and I couldn't take the horse home yet because I didn't have fencing yet, and that was okay. And as we were leaving, Christina said, what are we going to call that horse? And I said to Christina, I don't know. And Christina said to me, she's very, very sweet. And I said, you know something, Christina? I used to call my ex-husband honey. And it was a fairly special term for him. He was always my honey. And I think I need a new honey. And so that horse got a new name. (laughs) You know, I've been through a lot in the last six months. And if I didn't have Alan on, I would be so bitter. I would focus on my losses. But instead, I'm full of gratitude. And I'm full of love with the fellowship. I understand what it means to love the alcoholic and hate the disease because you see I still love my ex-husband and I have a very hard time calling him my ex-husband because to me he is still my husband and he's very special but he is sick and I can't save him and I have to forgive myself because after spending so many months on step 3 and so many months on step 11 I'm now on step 5 I have to answer to God I have to answer to Myself, and I have to answer to another human being why I chose to accept so much unacceptable behavior. You see, it wasn't that the alcoholic was doing this to me. It was that I was allowing this to be done to me. I had choices. And I chose to stay. And I chose to put up with a lot of unacceptable behavior. And I have to figure out what it was about me that got in that car so many times and rode with somebody who was clearly intoxicated and what it was about me who didn't protect that dog from harm's way. And I have to first and foremost forgive myself because I could do the best I could and I tried. And I walked out of a marriage loving someone dearly, dearly but having to let them go and having to let go and let God and I had to trust in the process and I understand now that one of my biggest faults is in Al-Anon we have the three A's. The first A is awareness. The second A is acceptance. And the third A is action. You see, I had a lot of awareness of what was going on. I was fully aware of what was going on. And I had a lot of acceptance, but I didn't take action. And now it's okay. It's okay. I'm learning to forgive myself, and I'm learning to move on. I don't need to forgive the alcoholic because he is sick, and that's, that is fine. And I wish more than anything he had found AA and had stuck with it, because I'm sure the story would have a different ending. But I had read in my um, Courage to Change book something that has a lot of me, meaning to me. Forgiving is not forgetting. It is letting go of the hurt. So today I have a new house, a new neighborhood, and I have wonderful friends who have rallied around and have carried me through this. I've gotten some wonderful gifts. Every time um, somebody gives me something, I would keep it as a housewarming gift. And I spoke in Winthrop when I just decided to leave the marriage, and they gave me a mug with a serenity prayer. And when the movers left and I was sitting in my new house and all I had was boxes and no food, I went to that meeting that night, and they sent me home with plates full of food to eat and a serenity mug because I couldn't find any cups and any silverware and anything. And God wanted me to remind me 
You see, now I can say the serenity prayer without dropping off God, because through the program I found a higher power, and I found a spirituality. And it, those were housewarming gifts. A funny thing happened on the way to this AA roundup. When Lionel called me to speak, he said he called me two days after I decided to leave the marriage, and I said, Lionel, if you're asking me to speak, I don't even know where I'm going to be then. I mean, my life is a mess. These people have heard me before. Why are you calling me? You know, and Lionel, in this kind, quiet, calm way, just said nothing, and I gave it some thought. And I realized my higher power wanted me to be here today and to speak, um, that I had a message and that it was okay. Except that Lionel made this little itty-bitty boo-boo. Lionel told me I was speaking at the Al-Anon convention of a hundred Al-Anon members. (laughs) And only four days after my divorce did Lionel say, are you ready for the AA roundup? And I'm like, what? And I'm like, Lionel, <laughs> Lionel. But, you know, I could never have afforded to come to Roundup. And I've never been to Roundup. And this was God's opportunity for me to come. And I got to have a weekend at Sugarloaf and a wonderful time. And this is my vacation for the year because a new house just kind of sucks you dry financially. Especially when you only get half of a household when you leave. So I guess it was meant to be, and I want to thank you very much for letting me share my story. I want to tell you that we walk together. For those of you in AA, we have the same steps and traditions with minor wording changes. And I have a tremendous amount of respect and love for AA and for the alcoholics in the program, because you were the lucky ones. You were the ones who were chosen by God to find sobriety, to find serenity. And God gives us a purpose in life, and we all have a purpose. And if it wasn't for Al-Anon, I wouldn't be here today. I would be that old woman in the mirror after that intervention. I would be full of bitterness, anger, and rage to that alcoholic. Instead, I have love and peace in the program one day at a time. Thank you.